our mighty Father, and now we come on words of your Son, words that will speak to every one of us here. So much for us to learn, so much for us to grow in. Open our ears and our hearts, we pray, and grant your word power as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. In the context of this section in Matthew 19, Jesus is uh, upending things over and over. He is rocking the world of his disciples over and over. We saw it at the start of chapter 19 where the subject of divorce came up and Jesus' answer on that subject was not what they heard, was not what was popularly held. It was something different that went back to the root of Scripture in the mind of God. He rocked their world. And then again, when children were brought up, children being seen as um, placeholders for people who would hopefully be useful later, And yet Jesus treated them with care and with concern and rebuked the apostles for turning them away and said really they should show that same spirit themselves. If one does not, he's not entering the kingdom of heaven. That was a world rocker. And then there was a triple punch with the rich young ruler. Three things that they totally were not expecting to see. One, wealth won't save us. Here's a rich man and he will not be entering the kingdom of God as he is. Works won't save us. He said he'd kept all the commandments from his youth, and then Jesus tapped in one place, and he went away sorrowing. Only God's sovereign grace can save us. That rocked their world and left them shaking. And so, today, staggering from this, Peter asks a question coming fresh off that encounter in verses 27 and following. And spoiler alert, he's going to get rocked again. Jesus' answer is going to shake them. And it also introduces our next section. First were three rockers that uh, touched on home life. Now three that deal with uh, looking forward to things to come. So let's look together, Roman numeral one, at some plain dialogue in verses 27 through 30. And first we have Peter's question in verse 27. Then Peter, in answer, said to him, Look, we ourselves left all things and followed you. What then will be for us? So Peter's still shaken by this uh, exchange with the rich young ruler, who would not leave everything, as Jesus said. Leave everything, Jesus said, and follow me. Well, Peter stresses that they did leave everything. The the Greek has a a way of uh, emphasizing that by sticking in the pronoun unnecessarily. So Peter says, we, we left everything. In contrast to him, we did leave everything. And he's, he's thinking of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Remember in verse 21, Jesus said, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Well, Peter says, we have left everything and we have followed you. So he's wondering about that treasure in heaven. What exactly is that? Because we did that. We left everything. We followed you. Now, they left everything. Okay, what was it for them to leave everything? Well, they left some shabby nets and a couple of little boats 
and kind of a shack that they lived in. Some of them were well-to-do businessmen, but not all of them. Matthew had been doing well, presumably, as a tax collector, but they were not rich men. They didn't leave a whole lot. But the point is, it was their everything. What they had, they left to follow Jesus, and increasingly they found themselves cut off from their society. So they'd left that too, and they were following Jesus. But in Peter's phrasing, in his question, we left everything, what will we get? Is there a little bit of pride there? We did what he wouldn't do. He's walking away sad, here we are following you. Is there some pride there? Well, you might wonder then, how is Jesus going to respond? Well, his response is really rather surprising. Look at his response in verses 28 through 30. First of all, he brings up the subject, specifically in answer to Peter's question of rewards for the twelve. That's what goes in the blanks there, rewards for the twelve. Verse 28, and Jesus said to them, amen, I say to you that you who followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits upon the throne of his glory, you too will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, we'll note the tone, the tenor, and the teaching of what Jesus says here. And the tone, to my mind, is, is surprisingly mild. Honestly, if I was reading it for the first time and had seen how Jesus dealt with them previously, like back in chapter 18, I would have expected a slap. I would have expected a snap back to Peter. And yet, he answers them straightforwardly. He just tells them what's in store for them, the 12 disciples. But I will tell you, uh, don't get too comfortable because something is coming but just not right away. We'll see it by the end of this section. So that's the tone. What about the tenor? Well, the tenor of what he says is that indeed the twelve will sacrifice much, but it will be rewarded richly. God is no man's debtor. That's sort of an underlying thought here. God is no man's debtor. No one will ever be in the position of saying, you know, I served you and, and what I got out of it is just awful poor. No, God will be no man's debtor. They may leave everything, but they will sit on 12 thrones. Now let's look at that teaching. What does Jesus say? Amen, I say to you. Remember, that's how Jesus underscores the truth of what he says. Normally teaching in Greek, he brings up a Hebrew word, amen, amen. Of a solemn truth, I tell you that you who followed me, just like you said, Peter, in the regeneration. Well, let's pause there. What does he mean about the regeneration? Interesting word, palingenesia. It only occurs twice in the New Testament. It occurs a fair bit in classical Greek and, and uh, the Old Testament. I mean, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Jewish writings. You can find it. But um, palingenesia only twice in the New Testament. Here in Titus 3.5, uh, turn there if you want, but I'm just going to touch on it fairly briefly. Other words, other scriptures we will turn to later. But Titus 3.5, Paul talking about our salvation uh, by God's grace, he says, and I'm just translating from the Greek, not by words which, uh, not by works which in righteousness we have done, but according to his own mercy, he saved us through the washing of palingenesia, the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 
So washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is what we call being born again. When somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins, God visits that person in saving mercy. The Holy Spirit, like the wind that blows where it wills, the Holy Spirit comes on that person by the sovereign grace of God. Not bidden, not asked, not sought. He comes on that person and breathes life into that dead soul opens those blind eyes, opens those deaf ears, and that person comes to saving faith and becomes a new person. In the words of the Old Testament prophecy, God takes out the heart of stone and gives a living heart of flesh. And he writes his laws on that person's heart, as Jeremiah says, Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy about this new birth, uh, which one day will come to the nation of Israel. So this is what happens to a human being when God saves him. We're lost, we're dead, but God regenerates us. He gives us new life. He gives us new birth. He gives us a new heart. The world will be born again one day. That's what this tells us. That as happens when an individual is saved by the Lord's sovereign grace, one day the world will be transformed by God's sovereign grace. There will be a new generation. It's important to keep in mind, both in our own thinking and when we talk to unbelievers, that what we see right now in the world is not what was when God created the world, and it's not what will be when God recreates the world. You can't reason from here to either direction. What will come won't come out of this in the sense of being produced by what we're doing now. Nothing we're doing today will cause that to happen. And what God created didn't cause this to happen. It was sin that caused this to happen. So this is the fundamental flaw of everybody who looks at the world and says, oh, how can you say God is good uh, when all, of this, all these horrible things are happening? Well, I can say he's good because he's good. The horrible things that are happening are happening because sin. Sin's horrible. Sin's horrible. That's what we take from what we see. But one day there will be a regeneration, and it's not going to be brought about by Uh, climate activists, and it won't be brought about by their critics either. It won't be brought about by any human works, not by church programs or moral renewal programs. It won't be uh, legislated by uh, Congress or uh, uh, made by an executive executive order of some president. This will be an act of God. This regeneration will be by the transforming power of God. And this will be the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God will come, by the power and by the doing of God, not by the activity of the church, but by the sovereign power of God. So this is the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. He says, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits upon the throne of his glory. There's the mark of it being the kingdom of God. Where is the Son of Man now? Well, he's sitting. Is he sitting on a throne? Yes, he is, but Scripture says he's sitting on with his father on his throne. He's at the right hand of the father. This refers to the throne of David. That's going to be on earth. Jesus is not sitting on that throne yet, but he will one day. He will one day sit on the throne of his glory, not his father's throne, not the right hand of God, but here on earth, ruling from a glorious throne. This is the kingdom of God. What are we reading about here? We see here that it's a regeneration. We see that the Son of Man will be sitting on the throne of His glory. What's all that about? Well, let's read about that. Turn to Isaiah 65. Not too hard to, to find, I think. After Psalms and Proverbs, you get to the big book of Isaiah, then turn to chapter 65. 
And we find the prophet writing about this very thing. And Jesus, assuming that we've read and believe the Old Testament, says this. Isaiah 65, 17, the word of Yahweh. For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. That's the regeneration. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. As he gives us new hearts, he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart. Be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. So you see, Jerusalem is the focus here. The capital of Israel is going to be the capital of the kingdom of God. Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. And then just skip down. I mean, it's wonderful to read, but look down at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. Now, this is very important, and it's also very hope-inspiring, but I I have to tell you uh, who don't know that in the history of the church, some of the greatest men and some of the greatest Bible teachers in history will look at a passage like that and, and not see anything that has to do with the nation of Israel at all. They see the church as the new Israel. They see Jerusalem as being the church. They, they would see this as being spiritually fulfilled, perhaps, in the church. Uh, certainly not for the nation of Israel to their mind. When the nation of Israel rejected Christ, they were forever put out of the program of God. And now all of the promises that God made to Israel get transferred into the the church, which now becomes the new or the spiritual Israel, the real realization of what Israel was supposed to be. And so the Jews are just outside with their noses pressed to the glass, looking enviously on on what we have that they should have had. And and these things are no longer literal promises. They're really spiritual or they're figurative in some way. And yet, look at what Jesus says. And look at what Jesus says teaches us to expect. He says, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Did he, did, does he spiritualize prophecies like this? No. Now, is there any chance that when he says, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, they would think, ah, yes, he's saying that by our writings, we will direct the affairs of Gentile churches. There's no chance they would think that. But I know one commentator in this tradition who says that's exactly what this means. They're ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. We're the 12 tribes of Israel, and they rule us by the epistles. But, exactly. Uh, but uh, Jesus says 12 thrones, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you say, well, aren't some of those tribes lost? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently God knows where they are. Because they're going to be reunited in the apostles. And he's making this promise. And if he's, he's making a promise he has no intention of fulfilling, well then, that's not very kind or faithful of him, is it? And that's not being a very good teacher. No, I think Jesus means exactly what he says. That there are going to be thrones set up over the restored and uh, renewed and regenerated 12 tribes of Israel. And that the Son of Man will sit on the throne of his glory over all of them. 
And this judging that we read about, it's like in the days of the judges. Now, there will be judgments to hand out, like we think of judgment, but there also will be leadership like the judges provided in the, in the days of the Old Testament. And, and I want you to notice, too, that Jesus says, when the Son of Man sits upon the throne of His glory, you will sit upon 12 thrones. Is there any doubt that this is going to happen? Well, no, there's no doubt at all that this is going to happen. Now, if it depended on human effort, would there be doubt that it would happen? Well, I think there would be absolute certainty that it wouldn't happen. That's <laughs> what I'd say. But it doesn't depend on human effort. This is something God's going to do. This is God's plan for the future of our planet. When the only thing that is in question is exactly when is this going to happen? That we don't know. But what we do know, it is going to happen. And there is no act of Congress, and there is no human uh, pact or uh, gathering that can prevent this from happening when God chooses it to happen. So, you know, if you're the sort of person who spends your days reading about politics, uh, I can only imagine that the effect of that is to fill you with anger, or fill you with despair, or maybe both at the same time. But you need to remind yourself as a Christian, whatever you're reading is, you're reading about what's happening now. You're reading what's happening about a, as, a, as a dying attempt to un-God God and dethrone God and replace Him with man it makes one failed effort after another failed effort. And what is ultimately going to happen is this. Ultimately, Jesus will return. Ultimately, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Ultimately, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne. And where does that imagery come from? I should have told you to stay in Isaiah 65. Look next door at Daniel chapter 7. It's a few books on. A couple of them are large, though. Daniel chapter 7. And we'll just lift some things beginning with verse 9. A vision that Daniel had in the night. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was, white, was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Now there's a glorious throne. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And so then he sees this uh, uh, fierce beast persecuting the uh, saints. We'll return to that in a moment, but now look at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this is the kingdom that we're reading about here, and the Son of Man sitting on his glorious throne. So back to this fearsome animal that was uh, waging war with the saints. In verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overcoming them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So verse 27, finally, 
then the reign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So you put that together, and what do you have? Well, you have the same thing you see here in Matthew 19. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns. He sits on his glorious throne, ruling over the entire planet, ruling over all things. But with him rule his people. And on 12 thrones are the resurrected apostles. I take it the 11 apostles, the one who stopped following him, Judas, went to his uh, place of punishment, but he was replaced in the book of Acts. The 12 apostles will sit on these 12 thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in this new heavens and this new earth. So did Peter get his answer? Well, yes, he did. Uh, is that a, a rich reward for, uh, in, in exchange for everything that they left? Well, yes, it is. It's not right now, but it's going to happen. But then we read number two, rewards for all disciples. Rewards for all disciples. So we've learned that Jesus does plainly teach that the Old Testament promises will be fulfilled. Now, I just want you to note that. It will mean different levels of things to, to each of you, depending on how much you've studied this. But note and remember this. When you hear somebody say, well, the New Testament changes the Old Testament prophecies, not to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus knowing, Jesus already having said that his generation has committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And yet still, he expects one day all 12 tribes to be restored and the apostles to be sitting on thrones ruling over them. So Jesus certainly believes Old Testament prophecy will be fulfilled as preached. I advise you to do the same. I do the same. So this is what Jesus teaches. Secondly, then, reward for all disciples, verse 29. So he said, you, speaking to the twelve. Now he says, and everyone of the sort who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields on account of my name, 100 times as much will he receive, and eternal life will he inherit. Will he inherit. Well, just starting with that, that's not too bad. You, know, you give up all sorts of things maybe in this life. You suffer the loss of all sorts of things in this life maybe. But your eternity is fellowship with God. Your eternity is seeing the face of God. It's worshiping God. Having the name of God marked on you as his child. It's living in his kingdom with no more sorrow, no more curse, no more sin. In you or around you, in the glorious presence of God, not too shabby. Amen? Not too shabby. But before that, he says, you, you leave all of these relations and you have replacement relations. Well, the first thing that I want to say and, 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 and lift out to you is what he said right here, that is the Christian call. That, that's not something that's, that's been burned out now and it, it doesn't apply to us. This is what everybody does when he becomes a, a genuine Christian. He leaves houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, and so forth and so on. Meaning what? Well, turn back to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll let Jesus explain what he means. So, let's see if you beat me to it. Matthew chapter 10, my big sausagey fingers. We're going to look at verses 35 through 39. He says, I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, just remind me, what do you do on a cross? You die. You, you die to how many things? You die to everything. Dead is dead. Dead people are not interested in the jack-in-the-box deal for a free burger if the Astros get three home runs. And they, they, they're dead to that. It doesn't inter- nothing interests them. Take up your cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And that is what every person does when he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He comes to Jesus and says, you are my Lord and you are my life. And he says to everything else, including himself, you're not. Not anymore. The most important thing to me anymore is not my parents, not my children, not my spouse, not my relatives, and not even my own self. I say goodbye to all of that when I say hello to Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And I remind you, that's what, that's what baptism is meant to mark. This is why baptism, as I've said in the past, is, is not a, a, a ceremony best meant for young children. Because in baptism, what somebody is declaring is he's declaring the commitment he made in becoming a Christian. And that commitment is, for all the rest of my life and eternity, I am dying to life outside of Christ. For good and all. And I'm coming to new life to God in Christ. And so I've I've remarked that it's a funeral with a happy ending, a baptism is. Because the person is buried underwater, but the person rises. But I remind you that, that all funerals are partings, right? But remember, they're partings in two directions, aren't they? The mourners there are saying goodbye to the person who's died, and the person who's died has already said goodbye to all of them. And that's what baptism marks, because that's what conversion marks. All my relationships change when I begin a relationship with Jesus. He becomes the most important person to me forever. But in beginning my relationship with Christ, uh, I gain a new family. But this truth is something that Christians need to remind ourselves of uh, frequently through our Christian lives. We might lose sight of and our husband or wife, our children, our, our relatives, our friends, our job becomes more and more important to us to the point where it, 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 it has reached a point that it shouldn't have. And it, we see that when there's something we know we should do as a Christian, but my husband doesn't want to, my wife doesn't want to, my children wouldn't want that, and so forth. So I don't do it because that relationship, would there'd be pressure on that relationship. If I did this thing, I know the Lord wants me to do. And that's when I need to remind myself. But I said goodbye to that when I became a Christian. I said, geez, I didn't stop caring for other people or loving other people. That's, I really began loving them for real for the first time. But they stopped being the most important to me. The most important is the Lord Jesus. And so he says, you receive a new family. He talked about that, and remember, in chapter 12, where he's teaching his disciples, and his relatives are standing outside. They're not sitting hearing his teaching. They're standing on the outside, and they want him to come out to them. Remember that? How did he handle that? Somebody came and said, your mother and your brothers want to talk to you. Like, stop teaching and go see them. And what does he say? He stretches out his hand to his disciples and says, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
And that's what he's talking about here, that when I become a disciple of Christ, I enter a new family. I have brothers, sisters I've never met. <laughs> I've got a family I've never met. Every one of them is, is related to me in Christ. We are under the same blood. We're not of the same blood, but we're under the same blood. Amen? So we're part of this new family. And Jesus reminds them we should remind ourselves. So these are rewards for all disciples. And then a provocative shift is launched in verse 30, and then I'll show you where it's landed later. But this is the opening bracket, and I'll show you the closing bracket later. Provocative shift launched when he says in verse 30, that many first shall be last and last first. Uh-oh. Okay, so this is a discordant note. He first gave Peter a very gentle answer. And then he gave an encouraging answer that applies to all disciples. But then he says, lest we think we can take out our calculator and say, okay, I can figure out exactly what my rewards are going to be. Jesus says, but by the way, everything's going to be topsy-turvy when the rewards are handled out, handed out. What? Well, this is just like what he's been doing and what he's like he's going to do. Rocking the world, turning things upside down. And so he says, the sorts of folks that you think would be first in line to get the greatest and best actually are going to turn out to be the last. And the ones that you think are going to be the last in line, the least significant, actually, they're going to be the first. What are you talking about? Well, he knows we're going to think this, so he tells us this parable. He tells us this parable to explain, and then at the end of it, he repeats himself in reverse. I'll show you. Roman numeral two, parabolic development, laborers in the vineyard, 21 through 16. Now we see this in uh, several moves. First, we see recruiting. I mean, there's the beginning of the day in verse one, and then there's the evening in verse eight. That makes for a nice division. So we see recruiting in verses one through seven and uh, read about the first hires in verses one and two. Jesus says, four, note the four. So this is a, an unhappy chapter division. You, you start with chapter 20 and you've forgotten the end of chapter 19, but, but we need to not. <laughs> the, he's explaining what he just said. He said, many, are, many who are last will be first and so forth. For, here comes the explanation. So, which is why I'm preaching it as one sermon. For the kingdom of the heavens is like a man, a housemaster, such as went out with the early morning, in other words, at the crack of dawn, to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers on a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, this is uh, very important. Every feature here is important. Here, here's a great man. Obviously, he has a, a large vineyard, we're to imagine, because he hires people and hires people, hires people, and then hires more people. So he's, he's got to have a lot of vines to take harvesting. He's got a great task. Must be harvest time that we're to imagine. He just needs workers. Lots of, lots of land, lots of grapes, just need workers. And so he's the housemaster. He's the master of this property. And he goes out at the crack of dawn, which uh, figuring it in Roman um, time would be about 6 a.m. They start the day at 6 a.m., crack of dawn. So he's going out uh, right at the start of the day looking for workers. And notice this first one, because this is important. You might even, um, I might even underline this because it's going to be repeated and it actually makes a difference. After agreeing with the workers on a denarius for the day. So they wanted to get exactly what he was going to pay him. And they came to an agreement. 
that they'd be paid a denarius. Denarius is, is a pretty standard uh, day's wage. So this is not an unusual salary. And the day, by the way, would be 12 hours, uh, six to six. So they're going to be paid a denarius for 12 hours work. But they agreed on that. They wanted to get an agreement. They got their agreement and they went out under that agreement. So, um, and this is going to be repeated in verse 13. And I'll explain later why I think that's important. That's the first hires. Now we have the middle hires. This is kind of in three parts. The first, the middle, and the last. Verse 3, and he came out around the third hour. So when, when's that? If, if the day starts at 6 a.m., then what's the third hour? 9 a.m. Third hour, and saw others standing in the public square, idle. You know, like these guys you see in the... Lowe's or Home Depot parking lot. They're looking for work. And to those men, he said, you also go into the vineyard and notice here, whatever is right, I will give you. Now, this is not what he did with the first. The first had a contract with a specific amount amount specified. But here he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. And off they went. And again, he came out around the sixth and ninth hours. So when's that? about 12 o'clock and about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and did likewise. Now notice that these are taken in groups of three hours. This is the usual way of doing it, taking it in groups of three hours. Third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour. This is all fairly normal. So he goes out, adds these workers, but notice, again, there's no agreed on rate. They have to trust him. They have to trust his character. They have to trust his righteousness. He says whatever is right, whatever is righteous, dikaios, I'm going to do what's dikaios for you, what's, what's righteous, what's right for you. So they have to trust him. They haven't been told an amount. And they go out, well, in trust of his character. First guys go out in trust of a denarius. The second and third groups go out in uh, trust of uh, his character. Second, third, and fourth groups. Then we have the late hires in verses 6 and 7. And he came out around the 11th hour and found others standing And he says to them, why do you stand here all the day idle? Interesting word, argus. It's just the word for working with the alpha privative. In other words, unworking, not working, not hired, idle. So why do you stand here all the day idle? They say to him, because nobody hired us. He says to them, you also go into the vineyard. Now, notice then, this is odd. This is a break in the pattern. We have the third hour, we have the sixth hour, we have the ninth hour, and then we should have what? The twelfth hour. But we don't. We have the eleventh hour. That's meant to catch our attention and and make us go, oh, this is weird. Well, it's even more weird when you think about it. If it's the eleventh hour, then how much much work are they going to do? One hour's work. They're going to do one hour's work, but still... There's work to be done. And so he hires them. He sends them out. Go get to work. Only an hour to do. And yet he presses them into the field. And there's no discussion of pay at all. <laughs> the first agrees on denarius. The second and third and fourth groups, he says, I'll pay you what's right. This group, he just says, go work. Interesting. Kind of less and less is given. So far, they're recruiting then. Now let's look at the rewarding in verses 8 through 15. We first are are met with the procedure, Uh, and uh, he starts with the late hires. He starts with the latest hires. He starts with the last hires. Verses 8 and 9, and when evening fell, so it's 6 o'clock now, time to go home and turn the TV on or whatever. And when evening fell, the Lord of the vineyard says to his foreman, 
Call the workers and repay them their reward. Now, this is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about rewards, and so it comes up in the parable. Repay them their reward, beginning from the last ones up to the first ones. And when those hired around the eleventh hour came, they received a denarius apiece. What? They got a full day's pay for how much work? One hour. They got a full day's pay. And then the first hires, he doesn't even talk about the middle hires, goes straight from the last to the first. And when the first ones come, they see this. They see them given a denarius, and they're like, hot dog. (laughs) So if he's giving a denarius to guys who only worked an hour, and we work 12 times that, we're going to get 12 denarii. That's pretty good. That 12 days wages for one day's wage. I mean, obviously, that just makes sense. But the protest in verses 11 and 12, excuse me, I'm sorry, they received a denarius apiece, verse 10. They just got the denarius, just one denarius, just like the last hires. Now the protest, verses 11 and 12. And when they received it, they said, well, thank you for the opportunity to work in your field and for keeping your word, right? Not so much. They started grumbling. Can you imagine this guy? Look at this. Who does he think we are? Look at the way he's treated us. That is so unfair. They started grumbling against the housemaster, saying, these last did for one hour, and yet you made them equal to us who carried the burden of the day and the burning just a very literal translation uh, that did and made they're the same verb in Greek so they did and you made them you did them equal to us for only one hour's work they worked 12 hours which is the usual these guys worked one which is not usual and they received the same and it seemed so unfair so they grumbled And here comes the punchline. Actually, there's a couple, but there's one main punchline in verses 13 through 15. Here's the punchline. But he in answer said to one of them, Pal, I did not wrong you. Was it not for denarius that you agreed with me? As I say, I I translate fairly literally so you can see how the Greek stresses words. Pal, I did not wrong you. Now that word pal, uh, it's tra- every English version translates it friend, but it's not the usual word for friend that means that you're actually buddies, you like each other. This is a word that actually means you've got some connection, um, whether by relation or whatever, and you're being polite, but you may not actually know the person's name. You know, like today we, we say bro, <laughs> or we say dude, or we say buddy, or we say hi there because we haven't actually remembered the person's name, or we don't know it. So we say something friendly and nice, uh, but not really intimate. And and that's the word he uses, that word. Pal, buddy, bro, look. (laughs) He says, pal, I I did not wrong you. Was it not for a denarius that you agreed with me? That's stressed. And remember, yes, that was stressed in the text. They had that agreement before they went into the field. So yeah, was it not for a denarius that you agreed with me? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last one even as to you. Or is it not allowable for me to do what I wish with what are my possessions? 
Or is your eye wicked because I am good? Kind of this whole thing is the punchline. So the main point is exactly what Jesus says, the first and the last. The first agreed on a specific pay rate. And though they worked for him in the field, you could say they really worked for the denarius because that was their agreement. They, they secured that exact agreement. So they went out for that denarius and they had no grounds for complaint. Yet they complained. But the last had no such agreement. They just trusted the owner. They trusted in his goodness, his righteousness. And they went out to the work. They worked for him. Not for the denarius, they worked for him and trusted that he would take care of them. He, he, he would see to it that they were justly rewarded for their work for him. So you could say the first worked for the denarius, but you could say all the others worked for him. They, they, they trusted him. They trusted his character. And when they were paid, they didn't complain. The first who got what they agreed on complained. All the others who didn't have an agreement, they didn't complain. Now, they all received wages, right? And in fact, didn't they all receive the same wages? Kind of. I mean, they all received a denarius, but, but think of it. Now, I'm not saying that a denarius is worth $120. I'm just saying $120 because I'm not good at math, and especially while I'm talking to you. So we're taking $120. Figure denarius is worth $120. If they work 12 hours, then how much are they being paid an hour? $10 an hour right? Thank you. So $10 an hour. And then, but if somebody works, say, instead of 12 hours, six hours and gets a denarius, how much is he getting an hour? $20 an hour. Huh. And what if somebody only works one hour and gets a denarius? He's getting $120 an hour. Now, I think you could live on that. That's pretty good money. And that's what they're seeing here. And they feel poorly used. But what does he say? First of all, he says, isn't it my right to do what I want with my stuff? And secondly, what does my generosity have to do with your envy and your bitterness? They're not thinking about what they should be thinking about at all. It's not their business what he pays others. It's his business. And the point is his generosity that in, in grace, he pays the others generously. He pays them all generously, but he pays these others specially generously, and he has every right to, because it's, it's his. And this envy and this bitterness makes them ugly. It doesn't make him ugly. But let me make just a minor point. This is not the point of the parable, but I think it's a valid point to draw from it. Um, well, excuse me, I'm, I'm actually going to get on that in a second. There's one, uh, I'm sorry, I want to talk about another minor point first. Uh, because notice that the text says that he says this to one of them in verse 13. Pal, I did not wrong you. They're all grumbling, but he singles one of them out. Now, what does that make you think about? It makes you think about Peter who, spoke, speaking for all the apostles, raised this question. And I told you that Jesus didn't rebuke him there, but he did come back around to it. And so Peter is kind of in the pal here. And here's his mild rebuke, because what he's raising here is he's raising this question. Since Peter said, we left everything and we followed you, what will, what will we get? Now he's finally raising the question, are you doing this for what you're going to get? Is, is that why you're an apostle? Because of the reward? Is that where your heart is? Because that's not the right place. 
Are you just working for the denarius? Or are you working for the Lord of the vineyard? So, uh, the envy is so ugly and distracting, he singles this out. Now, here's the side point. Um, the side point, as I started to say, is not the point of the parable, but I still think it's a lesson. Uh, people say the Bible doesn't say anything about politics. Incorrect. Now, it's true that the Bible doesn't give a constitution. The Bible doesn't use words like uh, republic or, or democracy or things like that. But I just would ask you this question. Could this parable even happen without the concept of private ownership of resources? No, because when he says, is it not my right to do what I want with what is mine? The answer would be, well, no, the state owns what you have. Or it would be, no, the community owns what you have. Or it would be, no, you know, OSHA or this or that or the other thing, or the unions, <clears throat> they dictate what you have to do with what you have. And so, you know, the way the government would do it is make everybody get a $120 an hour and then we'll all be rich, right? Well, no, <laughs> actually no, but that's a digression. Let me get back to this. The parable can't even happen unless... It's assumed that when he says, isn't it my right to do what I want with what is mine, that they would all say, well, yes, of course, it is your right to do what you want with what is yours. So that's the assumption that what's right is that a person owns his own resources, right? And I would point out to you that really, when you think about it, all of the Ten Commandments assume that same thing. Have you ever thought of it from that angle? The first four commandments are all about how you give God what is God's. He alone owns your worship. He alone owns your reverence. Don't treat His name. Don't dishonor His name. And His day that He set apart for the nation of Israel, you honor that day. They're all about giving God what is His. And what are the other six? They're the same. Your father and mother are owed your honor. So give it to them. It's theirs for you to give. And don't take away somebody else's life. And don't take away somebody else's wife. And don't take away somebody else's goods. Are you following me? Thank you. And don't take away his good name by slander and so forth. See, it's the underlying assumption of all of these. And so here, as I say, that's a side point, but it's still worth noting because you couldn't even do the parable under any other system. So now let's reflect about what this parable teaches us then, because we are uh, reflecting, that's letter C, reflecting. I said that the provocative shift was launched in 1930. Now the provocative shift is landed in verse 16, where Jesus repeats himself. Well, he kind of repeats himself. What's the difference? In 1930, he says, but many first will be last and last first. Here he says, thus will be the last first and the first last. He reverses the order. And so I, I just think of it as being the same thing seen in a mirror. He, he opens the bracket and then he closes the bracket. But what's in between is all about this. It's all about the fact that uh, what's first and last is not what we think is first and last. Uh, that we can't tell the order and the order in God's kingdom is going to be upend upended from what the kingdom of man assumes to be the case. And so we look at 
stars and celebrities, and we think surely they're going to be the most prominent and the most wonderful. And I, I imagine some, at least some of us have looked at celebrities and talented, brilliant people and thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if he became a Christian? It'd be such a great, a great uh, gain to the kingdom of God if that person could be a Christian. And the sort of thing this warns us is that's not necessarily the way God thinks. In fact, I think I could say it's not at all the way God thinks. Have you read 1 Corinthians 1? What does Paul say? You see your calling, brethren, that, I'm trying to remember this right, that a great many of you are famous. Is that what he says? He says, not many. (laughs) Not none, (laughs) but not many. And he says, God chooses the little things of the world to shame the things that are. And so here, uh, the last will be first. And, you know, that... If they were seeing themselves right, that should be a great comfort to them. As Peter perhaps thinks that he's a great big thing because he's left everything. But really in the scale of the world, oh, they're nothing. The, the world despises them. They're a little ragtag group of uh, mostly uneducated peasants following Jesus. And they're going even against, the, even against the current of their own religion, their own Jewish religion. They're nothing in themselves. Oh, but what God is going to do with them, that's amazing. That's amazing. And that should also both humble us and and encourage us. Because as we look around as Christians now, what are we in the world? Well, the biblically faithful Christians are the off-scouring of the world. We we are in, the the church is the, what's the expression, the Dempsey dumpster? We're we're the dumpster of the world. We're we're where the nothings are, the off-casts are, we're we're just, I mean, we're ridiculous. We're so backward and hateful and bigoted. I mean, it's amazing anyone even talk to us. And that's the way the world sees us. And really in the, in the hierarchy of the world, that's what we are. But one day, one day, the Son of Man will return and he'll sit on his glorious throne. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And everything we see now is going to be turned on its head So what he's saying to Peter here now and he says to us is don't concern yourself about the denarius. Concern yourself about the owner of the vineyard and working for him and working faithfully for him and counting yourself triply blessed that you even can work for him. Whether you've got 12 hours to do it in or one hour to do it in, get out there, work for him and trust him. So Let's expand this a bit. Number two, the whole lesson expanded. What does this say to all of us in addition to, to what we've just been talking about? Well, I'll just ask you the question. Is, is, there, is there a vineyard? Is, is there work to do for Christ? Let me make that a real question. Is there work to do for Christ? Is there work enough for everybody to do? Is there work enough for everybody to do times five? Yes, there is, as a matter of fact. Let me ask you another real question. Is it not worthy work? It is worthy work because is, not, is Christ not a worthy Lord? He is a worthy Lord. There's none more worthy than him. Can you not trust him that anything you venture for him will be well ventured, will be a good venture? Can you trust him? Yes, indeed, we can. And do we believe that we have something more important and better to do than serving the Lord Jesus? The answer to that 
should be no. So let me make some specific applications of this. You younger folks, you think you're looking at a 12-hour day ahead of you, and you think there's no rush, no need to get to it. I mean, after all, you're too young to be thinking about serving the Lord Jesus. You've got all these important things in front of you. You've got your school and job and dating and marriage and, and whatever, and, and maybe later that's the time to think about working for Jesus. But first of all, I'd ask, do you really know it's not your 11th hour already? Is everyone guaranteed to live to the age of 85? Actually, nobody's guaranteed to live that long. But regardless, it gets down to what do you really think of Jesus? Do you think that Jesus is worth serving? Do you think his work is worth doing? Well, it ends up then there's no reason not to get out into the field and start serving right now because I'll tell you what will happen if you don't. If your thought is, I will start working for Jesus when this happens or when that happens, I'll tell you what's going to happen. That'll never happen. And it'll never be enough because as soon as that does happen, there'll be this other thing that you need to wait for. Well, you needed to wait for high school to be over and then you'd really think about seriously serving the Lord. But, well, now there's college. So you really got to deal with college. Oh, but now you're engaged. Well, you've started a new job. Well, you've got a new car. Well, you're building a house. Well, you've got your kids to take care of. Well, you've got their education to take care of. Well, you know, you've got to have their wedding taken care of. Oh, there's all these grandchildren you got to... It never ends once we start making excuses for not going out into the vineyard and working. And I'll tell you where you end up. You end up with the 11th hour crowd who says what? I'm too old to do this. I, I've done my part. I attended church. I sat in there quietly while the preacher talked. So I did my part. Never joined, never served, but I did sat, sit there politely. Uh, and I did all these other stuff, and, and now I'm just, I'm worn out. And there's really nothing I can do but sit at home and watch TV, golf, fish, read books, whatever. And that's why, I've, and, and I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord to come pick me up and tell me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, I'm waiting. That's what I'm doing. Now, my question to the young person is, when do you think is a good time to start serving the Lord? Because the only answer to that is now. My question to the older person is, you believe that you're a, a mature, knowledgeable, wise Christian, so much wiser than all these young people littering the church, how are you living differently than an unbeliever again? What is he doing differently with his life? He's watching TV, he's golfing, he's fishing, he's, he's doing all these things too, but you're doing it expecting Jesus to pick you up at the end of it. Well, if it's the 11th hour, it's still the workday then. Now, how do you know if it's the workday? I have a very simple answer for you. I do. I have a very simple answer for you. If you're asking me, how do I know whether this is the day when I should get to serving the Lord? I have a question. Did you open your eyes this morning? See, so, you know, that may seem like a silly question, but it's not. Do you know many people did not open their eyes this morning? Not on this world, they didn't. Many people didn't make it through their life. What does it mean through the night? What does it mean that you opened your eyes and I opened mine? What does it mean? It means God made a specific individual decision for you to open your eyes. Because if he didn't want you to, well, you wouldn't have. 
So what does it mean if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian and you open your eyes, it means He has work for you today. That's, that's what that means. So the question then is, am I doing it? Could you, could you look at my life and tell by my priorities and where I invest myself that Jesus is the most important person in my world? Could you do that? Or could you not? So, again, I would say, if anyone would say, oh, what you're saying is so convicting to me, because I realize I have not been doing something about that. Okay, well, let's stay with the 11th hour person. Well, then do it, is my answer. Because look at this gracious master. It's the 11th hour, and they get to work, and they get the full salary. You know, all of us who are my age or around, we all look back and we wish we could do things different. We wish we could do things over or not at all <laughs> in our past. And you know, sadly, nothing you can do about that. But what can you do something about? What you do right now and going forward. And this speaks to all of us, doesn't it? And speaks to all of us. There is work to be done. The only question is, do I trust the master? Do I value him? Will I get working in his field? So, the, title, the sermon was titled, A Surprisingly Rewarding Discussion. Was it surprising? Well, yes, it was surprising. It's surprising that we'd be rewarded at all for doing just what we should be doing. And the rewards themselves are surprising. They're very generous rewards. But I think even more it's surprising to have to be reminded that God does what he will with his own and that God is worth serving because of who he is. It's surprising that we need to be reminded that. But we do. So the king will come, praise God. We're ragged minorities, but Christ wins. And all labor for Christ will be rewarding. So, Christian, are you alive? That means that you have kingdom work to do now. Non-Christian, are you alive? That means God has graciously given you one more opportunity to do serious business with the King, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and know Him as your Lord in your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's living and it's powerful. Pray that the Holy Spirit will take it in his hand and apply it as he sees fit. And we thank you for your grace. Every one of us who knows Jesus uh, depends on your grace, glories in your grace, thanks you for your grace. Thank you that when we, that you, you, lovingly bring us to see where we've made bad or wrong or foolish choices, and then you so often give us opportunities to make more God-honoring and more God-glorifying choices. And I pray for your help and your enabling work in every heart here. In Jesus' name, amen.